introducing Roy Evan Hoffman at uh, 8.35 on a Sunday evening. Uh, unusual, but we're very happy to have our guest speaker. Uh, zipping over with Zoom at the Friday Mishkolo. And tonight's topic is martyrdom, or uh, do we live by them? Yeah. Okay, so the question by the commandments. So we find that Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, is a preamble for the list of the forbidden marriages. And God warns the Israelites that upon their entry into the promised land, they cannot imitate the licentious and sinister ways of the Egyptians, among whom they had dwelled for a long time, for many centuries. And you can read the final how, verse. How do we know this is not about Azura? Why do we think it's licentiousness? Huh? Any topic. Why wouldn't it just be copying? Don't copy their Vodazaro. Well, there are, many, there, are, there are many unpleasant things that uh, this or that society might have uh, featured, but and all of them might be things to stay away from. The Torah at various junctures, this chapter versus that chapter, will emphasize one over the other. This is about Gilu Arayot, and so therefore uh-huh. the, the emphasis is on the historical reality that the Egyptians were steeped in such things, and we have to stay away from it. So you can read the final verse of the preamble either as being exhortative or as vouchsafing reward for compliance. So what does the Pasuk say? Pasuk hey, kukotai vet mishpatai asher otam ha'adam v'chai bahem ani Hashem. You shall keep my laws and my rules by the pursuit of which man shall live. I am the Lord. So are we reading this Pasuk as instructing people what to do or as promising them what's going to happen if they adhere to the rules? So the Vachai Bahem, is it an instruction or it is a, or it is a promise of some kind of reward? Now, the most famous, famous exegetical interpretation of Vachai Bahem is that of Rabbi Yishmael um, in both the Mechilta and the Gemara. And what does he do? He limits the obligatory or even legitimate circumstances for martyrdom. If a Jew is under duress to the extent of a threat of life, then to violate one of the commandments, in most instances, he should capitulate to the demands of his heathen oppressors and perform the forbidden act. In other words, it's not a good thing to go for martyrdom in most instances, but rather the Vachai Baham Bishmoel is you have a solemn responsibility to live, even if it costs you some sort of a violation of this or that edict of the Torah. So in this vein, under uh, Pasuk Hay was understood to mean we are to live by the commandments, not to die because of unwavering adherence to the commandments. These are options, commands? These are options or commands? So this comes across as a command. You are bidden to live rather than uh, submit to getting killed uh, because of your adamant refusal to do this or that Torah violation. Now, the only exceptions to this rule are the so-called cardinal sins of idolatry, idolatry incestuous or adulterous fornication, and murder. The notion that high-level prohibitions are inviolable even in the face of death would seem to be an, an important halachic detail that should go back to the earliest phases in the development of Jewish jurisprudence, if not to Moshe Rabbeinu himself. You know, it's halacha l'moshe That's what it should be. 
the, the, the specific circumstances where martyrdom is required. However, in fact, the ruling that one must submit to martyrdom only for A, B, and C, idolatry, fornication, and murder, was reached relatively late in halachic history at a meeting at the upper chamber of Nitze at Lod during the Hadrianic persecutions, so we're talking in the 130s, in the middle, you know, the middle of the second century of the common era, that's when these things were figured out. That prior to that, there was no real guidance as to when martyrdom is appropriate and when violation of this or that detailed Torah law is better or is advisable. You read about required. the Hashmanoyim, that they, uh, they died rather than fight on Shabbat, which seems... Okay, so we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna get to that. We're going to get to it. So from a historical point of view, this chronology, chronology actually is quite sensible. The travails of the Israelites during the biblical period involved the diminution of their political status, but did not typically include Gentile suppression of Israelite religious observance. That, that's a very important point. We have many enemies in the Bible, but the enemies we had in the Bible were national enemies of Yisrael or Yehuda, the nation. They had no particular interest in forcing this, the individual people of Yisrael or Yehuda to violate their religious scruples. All they wanted was to conquer territory and to kill wholesale, classic old, old world warfare. You know, you defeat the enemy, you go to war because you like going to war, you want to conquer territory. But as for what the, these people who are your enemy do religiously, you don't really could, couldn't care less. It's a, it's a, a polytheistic world. The, the Jewish religion was not threatened only insofar as we have to survive in order for it to exist. Antiochus IV was the first heathen overlord to attempt to extirpate the practice of Judaism. Forget the people, the, the Jewish people in the flesh. The religion of Judaism was threatened by Antiochus. Now, the Apocrypha tells stories of heroic martyrdom in response to Hellenistic pressures to violate ancestral traditions. So the elderly scribe Elazar lost his life in gruesome fashion on a torture rack for his refusal to eat pork. This is in second book of Maccabees, chapter six. So he refused to eat chazer, and he died a, a horrible, horribly painful death because of that refusal. Was he right or wrong to do this? Well, from what we can gather, there were no instructions at that time. It's not as though the religious authorities had laid out carefully when you do this and when you don't. A mother and her seven sons willingly sacrificed themselves rather than transgress the dietary laws. That's Chana Veshiva Baneha, although in Maccabees it doesn't go by the name Chana. So uh, this idea of I'm going to risk my life, give up my life, give up the lives of members of my family for any and all Torah prohibitions, okay, it sounds admirable, admirable if that's in fact what the rules are, but are those the rules? There were no rules. After a concordat between the Jews and the Seleucid regime in 163, there were no further attempts to destroy Judaism, which means that our question doesn't come about for the next 200 years or, or longer, that uh, there may be battles, nationalistic battles between Jews and their enemies, but the religion of Judaism is not uh, threatened, and therefore individual Jews don't need guidance about when to give up their life. Uh, under Roman rule, starting from the, uh, the days of Julius Caesar in the 40s before the Common Era, 
Judaism became a religio lequita, a lawful, illicit religion, uh, and remains so even during the Great Revolt of 66 to 70. So even when the when the Beis HaMikdash was being destroyed, Judaism was not outlawed. The religion was kosher. And you weren't being punished as an individual Jew living in the Roman Empire for performing mitzvot. Okay. It was not until the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 135 that the practice of Judaism by individual Jews became under Roman law capital offense. Capital offense. So then the question is going to be, well, What's the individual Jew going to do? Abide by Roman gu- guidelines and become basically uh, uh, an irreligious person, uh, a non-observant Jew, or are they going to hold fast to their, their, their ancestral ways and risk life and limb? So uh, there's an academic debate why the second century sages felt the need to codify the rules of martyrdom. Why did they have to codify the rules of martyrdom? One theory is that too many Jews in an admirable devotion to faith were dying. And the concern was that Jewish super-duper uber-piety would tragically destroy the Jewish people or dramatically damage its demographic strength. And accordingly, the decision was reached that a Jew should not sacrifice his life except to avoid the most egregious of sins, the three cardinal sins, adultery, idolatry, murder. So this, this version of the story is the, like, you know, the, the from version, in the sense that the Jews are really holy people. They love their faith. They love their mitzvahs. They're willing to do the mitzvahs even in the face of death. But we have to have strategic calculations here. We don't want too many people to die. If too many people die, there's no Am Yisrael. There's no Jewish religion without Am Yisrael. So we got to cut back. We have to nip it in the bud before it goes too far. Was this um, in, in Eretz Yisrael? Or are you thinking the, in the it, in, Eretz, in Eretz Yisrael. Now, the idea that the rabbis were concerned about the demographics of Eretz Yisrael is something that we see throughout rabbinic literature. If you learn in yeshiva, you'll never learn this. But if you go to like a university setting where they learn academic Talmud, many, many of the halachot uh, about Jewish-Gentile interactions really were designed to increase Jewish demographic strength in Israel at a time when there was a fear that it was sliding into a minority status, which ultimately it would. The Jews lost their demographic majority at sometime in the 3rd or 4th century. I think like um, saying about met in Chutzlar, I think it was designed... Or was said at that time. Yeah, yeah. The Tumas Mesa Chutzlar was designed to keep people in Israel, to keep people right. in Israel, right? Exactly. And the ban on buying glass, uh, the, 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 the Tumas for glass products, many, many things. The, the Easter of selling uh, Bahama Gaza to a Nachri uh, was really to uh, avoid the, Jew, the non-Jews having a stranglehold over Israel. Many things were done by Chazal in the halachic realm, not a, not explicitly, but it's implied, or you could read into it, to improve Jewish demographic strength. And if a lot of Jews are dying. For the sake of the mitzvot, that's a problem. Okay, so that's one theory. However, there's a polar opposite theory about why they had to codify which laws are inviolable and you should lose your life for the cause. And what is that? That Jews were all too willing to cast aside their religious scruples to save their lives. And in consequence, the sages felt it necessary and appropriate to demand that at least in a limited number of instances Jews sanctify the name of God and show their allegiance to their heritage by giving up their lives rather than committing an extreme moral or theological sin. So 
you know, everybody's running away from the religion because it's dangerous to be a, a practicing Jew. And Yahadut is dying. So what's the solution? The solution is to say, well, we don't want you to die for any and all things because we know you won't. But at least give up your life for the most extreme circumstances, like don't kill people, don't commit sexual violation, and don't worship foreign gods. If you can give up your life for those things, that is good enough, good enough. But why okay. even those things? I mean, if you're really worried about the, the demography and the guy tells you, you murder this murderer, uh-huh. so maybe you should do it. Or, so, uh, so the, the argument that we're, that we're that we're also going to do it. I mean, it's like the, the the concern about demography is only within the first theory. Within the second theory, the concern is that the religion is being lost because yes, persecution, but also that the hamonam, the masses, are not all that committed to it. So that in the face of persecution, they really just they're walking away. And we don't want that to happen. So we would like the strengthening of Judaism by at least creating a small roster of mitzvot that you can't violate under any circumstance. Why these three? So Avodah Zarah, at the basic level, is a commitment to Jewish theology. You know, do not stumble into other religions. Murder, you know, moral decency. And Gilead Arias, along the lines of murder, moral decency. Um, okay, but you, you could question why these things, and, and you know what? Not all the Tanoim agreed. When it came to Avodah Zarah, there was Amanda Omar that if it wasn't in public, if it was in private, you could you could bow down to the idol, you also not take that back. in your heart. And, it's, also, and, and, it's also reversible. Right, so mur- murder is not reversible. Uh, an act of Bia is not reversible. Avodah Zarah is a, is a shtus. You did it, but you don't mean it. You, but, but five seconds later, like it, it didn't matter that it happened. No harm, no foul. Um, so yes, there, there, there is a Tanaitic view that that, that the Avodah Zarah is only Asib of Farhesian. Okay, now, the Wait, first theory... Is there, excuse me, is there yeah. uh, something to the fact that the Hashmanayim already had a deal with this issue about not fighting on Shabbat? And they held, uh, so, you know, when your life is following up what Bruce was saying, sort of, yeah. when your life is threatened, you you violate the mitzvah, even Shabbat. Okay, so the 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 the, the story about fighting on Shabbos, whether or not the Chashmonaim, in fact, changed the law, it, uh, conventional wisdom has it that, yes, that prior to the Hasmoneans, Nobody was willing to fight on the Sabbath, even defensive wars, and that's why they all died. And the Hasmoneans, in their wisdom, changed that. However, there's academic research in more recent decades that casts a little question upon that. What maybe the Hasmoneans did not really change things all that much, but in any event, certainly in Antiochus's time, Antiochus IV, the the concern about Jews dying in too in too large of a number because of their religious uh, fervor. Yes, was something that had to be addressed, and there needs to be a, a way to prevent that from happening wholesale. Otherwise, Am Yisrael will come to an end. Don't we have but a rule after that, the... in public, huh? anything if it's a shmad, supposedly give a lot. So, the, so the, Bavli, the Bavli said, but b'shas hashmad, even things that are not one of the cardinal sins, you ought to be willing to risk your life for the team. Or wearing uh, shoelaces. Or the, the look uh, like rocks in the sun, even the black shoelaces, okay? So the, that may be hyperbole in the Talmud there. The point was simply that if you know this persecution is just to debase Judaism, to mock our faith, 
then that's a, a moment where martyrdom becomes appropriate, where it's the same violation, but just for the Hano of the Goy and not to mock faith, then it's not a moment for martyrdom. That's that's the Bavli's approach. Okay, so the first theory that the concern was too many people are willing to die for the cause is supported by a Midrashic passage that reports Jews being crucified by the Romans for circumcising their children, eating matzah, waving a lulav, reading Torah, observing Shabbos, dwelling in a sukkah, wearing tefillin, wearing tzitzis. It's a mechil to the Rabbi Yishmoel. So you have all these performative mitzvot that a religious Jew will do. Talis, tefillin, okay, davening, lulav, matzah. If the, if the religion had been banned and all of these activities were known to be uh, life-threatening, then why were so many people doing it? Why are there so many examples? The answer is, well, we're a religious people. We're devoted to the cause of Torah. And in a moment of persecution, many people were willing to take chances because they love their religion that much. Okay. What about when you're fighting a war and killing, having yourself killed, like Shold asked um, his servant to kill him? Or, yeah. you know, other people uh, deciding to fall on their swords to die instead of being captured. So falling on the sword is usually understood to be a decision that is taken when death is inevitable, but excruciating death is likely at the hands of the enemy. Um, and so this way, one expedites the process in a manner which is not going to be torturous. The end result is the same. The person dies. But it, it's done as a, as, a, as a personal safety mechanism, so to speak, against uh, extreme torture. Whether it's mutter or usr, it's a big halakhic discussion, a lot of ink has been spilled, but it really has nothing to do with whether or not you should lose your life for the cause of Judaism. The, that kind of episode is where you'd rather win, you'd rather your team you know, win the battle, but if you're going to lose and you're going to get captured, then, well, you don't want to you have you know, your, your fingers well, chopped off and then kill. Rather than... Uh purposely allow yourself to die or kill yourself why not like run away reorganize come back and fight I mean, why so you that, is pre- that that is preferred but let's say that option is not really available to someone no but these people want so- to do its vote knowing they might get killed for it oh so, like- so on the issue so with fair battle on the issue of mitzvot so if your argument is well let's hide for the moment and not reveal ourselves to be observers of the commandments let this pass, because in a few years, months, or years, time, it'll pass. Move. And then we'll, we'll once again go back, back to being observant. So you're right. That, 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 so that's the perspective of Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta, who, who argued with Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was Makil Kilis Torba Rabbi. He was you know, teaching Torah in public in front of large audiences. And, and, and the, the, the counter-argument was, you're crazy. You're going to get yourself killed. Let's go in, you know, in hiding for a little while. We'll ride out the, the the bad wave, and then when it's over, we'll go back to public observance of, of Judaism. That's a very reasonable perspective. But uh, for those who did not want to, who who wanted to be overt and obvious about their, about their behavior, there were people doing eating matzah, sukkah, filling, and so on and so forth. Okay. Now the That's second the theory. The what about preemptive? Grass will grow from his cheeks. <laughs> What about preemptive suicide that they did, that the communities in the, that they did in mines and so so pre preemptive suicide in in crusader times was to avoid two things one forced conversion of children uh, or even of adults but especially of children 
and so therefore the ch- better off the child is dead than become a Gentile. Or the pressure to convert would have meant physical torture of the adults also, and to avoid the physical torture, better to die. That's almost the same thing as the Shaul situation, except in the Shaul situation, it's military conflict and battle. In the Crusader situation, it's just when you convert to Judaism, and on the premise that they're not willing to convert, they're going to be tortured horribly and eventually die anyway, might as well die sooner. Um, Now, you could argue that in that instance, suicide is a safety mechanism lest you capitulate under threat of torture or in the midst of torture and actually convert. In other words, if you're dead, you can't convert anymore. Um, So just in case you're not comfortable or confident in your own ability to withstand the physical pressures, the end of your life means there's no more pressures. Okay. But as I said, conversion is revocable. You just change your mind next day. You... uh... Or again, you move yes, but, 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 but for, for, for many people in Ashkenaz, the notion that conversion was was revocable or uh, did not hold sway because the church wasn't going to let you out of it. Once you were in, you were in. And just the act alone was so disgraceful in the eyes of the Jew as to make it something worth dying for. Unlike in Maimonidian situation in the Iberian Peninsula, where it was revocable in the sense that you could move, like, you know, the Sephardim in the Iberian Peninsula who converted out, and they went to North Africa, they went to wherever they went. The Ashkenazim were kind of geographically stuck. There's nowhere to go for them. Uh, they're doomed. Sephardic Jews, they, they could go somewhere else, or the notion of, of saying something about Allah was less objectionable than, than submitting to baptism. Okay, so the second theory that uh, too many Jews were were abandoning the faith, and therefore religion had to be strengthened by creating the three cardinal sins, is supported by a story involving Rabbi Yoshua. So uh, what happened? The, 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 the disciples of Rabbi Yoshua, they changed their attire during the, the Hadrianic persecutions so that they would not be recognized as Torah scholars by the authorities, by the Romans. A Roman officer did recognize them and castigated them for their half-measure, In his view, either they should apostatize or they should stick to their cultural practices and accept death. The idea of remaining a Jew but being quiet and closeted about being a Jew was to the eyes of this Roman soldier an embarrassment. Either die for your cause or become a goy, one or the other. So they responded that they were prepared to die for the sake of Judaism if absolutely necessary, but that it was against human nature to be suicidal or needlessly expose oneself to mortal danger. Uh, it's, a, it's a gracious rabbi, uh, pay base. So what does that story tell you? That people love religion. They love their religion, but they don't really want to die. And they'd rather have both. So if they can get away with hiding and riding out the bad wave, they'll try it. But having been called out on it, having been caught, what's their answer? Their answer is, you know, we, we were hoping for the best. And if we have to die for the cause, we will. But we try to avoid it because that's human nature. So... If human nature is to avoid dying for, for the cause, then a lot of people were abandoning mitzvah observance. Not just, you know, matzah and talis and tefillin, but maybe even and comes along the, the sages to say, whoa, we got to put a little safeguard here. There are certain things that are beyond the pale for which you have to die for the cause. Okay. Now, regardless... Can't we, can't, we say, can't we use what... Amos says, which is basically at at such a time when everything is so corrupt and everything going on around you is crazy that basically the prudent man should keep silent 
for it's an evil time. That way he can practice afterwards. This will pass. And Yeah, yeah, th- that's a very reasonable perspective. And it, it it's borne out by the fact that after the Hadrianic persecutions ended, in the year 140, what happened? All the major sages were able to gather under Rabbi Yehuda's auspices at Usha, the conclave of Usha, and have a major... Uh, uh, you know, gathering of of, of Chachamim to issue Takanot, Takanot Usha, and to revitalize the Tanaitic period, with the Mishnah being written down only two and a half generations later. So, the the uh, the idea that the bad times are of limited duration, and we can re- bring back Judaism fairly soon, was not wrong. Was not wrong. Okay. Now, regardless of the sages' motivation in codifying the rules of martyrdom. Rabbi Yishmael's interpretation cannot be regarded as the plain meaning of the Pasuk of Vachai And the same can be said regarding the Amor Shmuel's use of the same Pasuk to permit the performance of labor on Shabbos to save human lives. You know, on Shabbos, The sages never doubted that the Sabbath laws are waived when tending to the medical needs of a sick person. But they struggled to find a compelling biblical basis for that leniency. If you know the Gemara, you'll know that they try to offer like a half a dozen different sukkim to prove the point that you could, you could be Mechal Shabbos for a chole. All right. Well, Shmuel, the Amora, bombastically touted the superiority of his proof text over those of, offered by the Tanoim, which is a little bit of a chutzpah. Here's an Amora saying, oh, my, my drusha is better than all the Tanoim's drushas. But in truth, he was really just borrowing from Rabbi Yishmael and borrowing a, a, a homiletic interpretation that really is not legalistic. And the Jewish Study Bible, which was one of the best English translations of the, of the Tanakh, says rabbinic law introduced a legislative import into an originally non-legislative phrase, meaning v'chai Bahem was about sachar va'onish. It was not about chiyub or, or isur. Uh, and yet we read into it notions of legal import when really it was just, uh, uh, you know, a non-legislative phrase. It's about what God will do, not what we're going to do. Okay, so Onkelis read the verse as follows. If you keep my statutes, you will thereby earn eternal life. Uh, Pseudo-Jonathan, Targum Yonason, also adopted the same translation and adds, your portion will be among the righteous. Yechelik will be among the tzaddikim. It's not surprising that the Targumim influenced by rabbinic theology, would insert into their translations of the Torah references to the afterlife. But this too cannot be the plain reading. Why? Because the Torah never talks about the afterlife. V'chaibahem might very well connote divinely conferred reward for those who are loyal to God's rules. But that reward must have some earthly manifestation because the Torah only knows about earthly manifestations. The Torah never mentions a hereafter. So, yes, the Tagum can say it because they're in the, in the rubric of the Chazal. But the Torah itself, it's got to be some earthly reward. Now, let's go to Rashbam. Rashbam appears to be correct. What does he say? He contrasts Pasuk He with Pasuk Chavtes. The former verse sets forth the reward for compliance. And the latter verse warns of dire consequences for those who breach the holiness regulations. They violate the Arias laws. So Vachai Bahem, then, is the antithesis of Kores. Vachai Bahem is the opposite of Kores. Kores is sometimes translated as spiritual excision. 
and is understood by Chazal to mean early death at the age of 50. In this view, Pasukei takes on the same meaning as a verse we say in the Shema. Laman yirbu that piety is being rewarded with earthly longevity. Earthly longevity. You'll live a long life. Chaybem. Okay, I may have asked him, whatever it is. Now, Rav David Hoffman, no relation to me, but I wish there were, because he's a hero. Okay, so he offered a moralistic interpretation of Pasuke. He said, only through fealty to God's law can one gain true life. The life of the evildoer is not really life. Uh, and the Medrash has this notion that the Russia, even Bechayav, is Mikramase. He's called a dead person. The Ratzadik is called alive. A Russia is called dead. So Vachai Bahem means your life is considered real life if you've been living them according to uh, the precepts of the Torah. Now, Rav Meir uh, uh, noted that the Pasuk refers to a promise of life for Adam, man, in the most general sense. And therefore he claimed in Babakama that even a Goy who delves into Torah study can achieve spiritual uh, elevation on par with the coin Godel of Yisrael. That even a Goy can become a, a, a spiritual giant because it's not just a matter of Yisrael, but rather Adam, man, and all of mankind are bidden to behave appropriately and to refrain from entering into forbidden unions and from engaging in deviant practices, deviant intimate practices. And those heathen societies who excel in the moral realm will be blessed with life. And those societies that are debaucherous and do horrible things, well, will be doomed. Okay. Now, Chief Rabbi Hertz, the Hertz Chumash, okay, I'm sure in Israel you can't find a copy of the Hertz, Hertz Chumash anywhere, but in, back here in America, Okay, we still have the Hertz Chumash. And he, uh, on this Pasuk, quotes the, the British theologian William Eng. What a follow. This is the quote. No country was ever strong in which the sanctity of family life and the value of personal purity was not upheld and practiced. So the bottom line is that Jews live in a, in a, in a Gentile society here in America and in a Gentile world. And in a world where uh, in the past bunch of decades, cultural taboos are with great frequency and rapidly being undermined. So things that were for centuries and millennia on end regarded as uh, no no good, you can't do that, it's a taboo, all of a sudden those things are gone. So immodest, coarse, vulgar and indecent behavior and verbiage has become the norm, not just in the media or fictional de- depictions, but even in public discourse and actions by public figures. People are no longer ashamed to be vulgar. And the Jews must therefore be vigilant in uh, up, up, upholding our own standards of moral conduct. The Vachai Bahem means we have to live in an elevated style. Hopefully we won't have to die by that style, we'll live by that style, but we will not participate in what the Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, for those of you ex-New Yorkers, okay, Senator Moynihan, he famously said that the coarsening of society was defining deviancy down. Defining deviancy down. That was his famous uh, expression, his sociological expression. So Jews cannot be a party to the defining of deviancy down. Arva Chaybahem has to be on a madrega 
which is consistent with the, the, the tough standards of the Torah, that we don't do certain things. Now, I wrote this, uh, this uh, article on Parshas Achremos uh, seven years ago. And at that time, I was just a rabbi. But now I'm not just a rabbi. I'm also a high school teacher. And I realize now, having taught in high school for this past year, that vulgar language and behavior has become the absolute norm so that people are willing to say things that maybe a generation or two ago you would say in private if you were a little bit vulgar. But no one would ever think to say it in public in a school hallway where the teachers might be around and the principal might be around the corner. And yet today, with no hesitation, all sorts of schmutz is coming out of the mouths of uh, Jewish children. Allah has come of a come of the Goyesha children. So uh, the Vachai Bahem, the Bahem is what matters. We have to live by a, a, a standard of decency as you know, dictated by the Torah and not by the debased standards of today. Although, you know, when I was in graduate school in St. Louis, there were a lot of these evangelical types. And uh, they were very polite, very polite. Uh, yeah. Much more polite than the typical New York Jew. I'm sorry to admit. Uh, they were straight, they were honest, polite. You know, you ran out of gas in the neighborhood, they would be very helpful. And yeah. um, now that's not the average American. But yeah. uh, I don't know if people support a return to that type of America. But... Um, it may be another wrong president, so uh, <laughs> it's a different topic. All right. Well, on that note, gentlemen, have yourselves a good week. Yom Hatzmut, Sameach, enjoy the Independence Day. We'll see each other soon. Just a quick question. So people in Israel, there are wars here all the time. I've been told by friends of mine in the States, how can we move there? It's, it's, it's you know, you're, you're risking your life. It's a... Uh, I mean, we just had a terrible incident right here in the, you know, with the D family in a front. Yeah. Um, so putting one. You know, you know what the answer to that is? The, the answer to that to that is very simple. The total number of casualties on both the Jewish, Israeli, and even Palestinian side combined is such a low number relative to the other wars of the world, and that's a testament to. Jewish valuing of life that, you know, Israel has historically not engaged in reckless adventurism where needlessly uh, many, many of its boys and girls will die. Every life is precious and therefore casualty counts are always kept as as bare minimum as possible, which is why the Yom Kippur War was such a shock because 3,000 was a tremendous number. But, uh, you know, no matter where you live, whether you live in America or anywhere else, your, your country can be engaged in warfare and there can be large amounts of death. And even though Israel has been a beleaguered gar- garrison state for its whole existence, still the, the, the raw numbers have been with, within reason. It's not too dangerous to live in Israel. It may be dangerous. And there, there, will, there will be people who, who lose their life for the, for the cause of Am Yisrael. But the total numbers... Uh, fair can you walk uh, around the New Rochelle at night at any time of day or night? Or? You can. You know, there are those who would claim in downtown New Rochelle you can't. But the truth is you can't. But don't don't quote me on that one. <laughs> I, used I used to live this. I know they are well enough. I, I, let's put it this way: I walk every year on Shavuos night for Tikkun Leil Shavuos from Anshi Shalom to Young Israel, two and two point seven miles up North okay. Avenue through the bad neighborhoods by the police station, by the crack houses. Okay, and I've never been bothered in the eleven years that I've been walking to Young Israel at one a.m. Uh, you know, no one's ever bothered me.
You have your keeper on and uh Yeah, yeah, suit and a yarmulke, the whole business, holding a safer. But they see that you have a gun holster, so. Well, I am the police chaplain. Are you? I am, yeah. I just became it this year. Wow. That's great. (laughs) That and two bucks get me on the subway. All right, gentlemen, a good day. Take care. All the best. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, guys. See everybody tomorrow.